You're listening to Orange County's only station with critical business information, Critical Mass, with your host, Rick Franzi. Well, the first surprise of the new year. It's not Rick Franzi today. It's Paul Roberts. I will be uh, filling in for Rick. Rick will be back next week. And uh, as always, let me remind you what we're doing here, the purpose of the show. Uh, The name of the show is Coast to Coast, and the purpose of the show is to talk to business owners across the country and see what we can learn from their experience, because those of us who produce and put on this show believe that there is wisdom out there in the experience of others. Um, This show is brought to you by Renaissance Executive Forums, and that's, of course, the basis for their business, the idea that you can uh, share ideas and information and insights and together you know, we're all better. And uh, so if you want to learn more about their monthly peer group meetings, their their brain sessions, their brain trust, you can certainly go to Renaissance Executive Forums and uh, find out more about their monthly peer groups. But for us today, our ta- challenge is we have three totally different entrepreneurs today, and we're going to see if we can get them all into the hour here. And uh, so we're going to, uh, I don't think we have any other accounting business to uh take care of let's uh, jump in and bring in our first guest welcome welcome to critical mass coast to coast hi and let's identify yourself and tell us about your business a little bit here my name is susan daywitt i'm the ceo of slm facility solutions nationwide slm basically provides avenues of diversion for waste materials throughout the united states and canada we manage the process and procedures for the clients we serve. We specialize in trash removal, reprocessing and diverting of recyclables, including cardboard, paper, plastics, aluminum, glass into reusable streams. We also manage grease trap pumping and the diversion of grease and solids, along with a huge collection of cooking oil, where we have that diverted into biodiesel all over the United States and Canada. Wow. Okay. Infectious waste is another area we manage, and we really feel that our country needs this kind of help, so we've been here to aid in the administration of the diversion to the right sources, which are plentiful. Our clients hire us to report the service, metrics, trending, payment of bills, and to provide annually their carbon footprints. We literally save hundreds of thousands of dollars for our clients here um, every year, and then we, certainly we pay out rebate, rebates on a monthly basis. Wow, that's that's a lot to digest here. So let me see if I can wrap my head around this. So do you actually come and pick up the solid waste and the cooking oil and all that, or do you manage this for some, in other words, they hire you and then you find suppliers to, to actually do all these things? Yeah, we act as a middle person between our clients and the vendors. We hire the vendors to supply the services on behalf of our clients, but it's such an important um, area to be involved with because there's so much waste in the country and it needs to be diverted. And so I got into the management business of this back in 1992 and certainly formed this particular company in 1998. So I'm going to ask the question that everybody's thinking out there. How did a nice girl like you end up in such a dirty business here and waste Uh management here? Yeah, my dad asked me that all the time. <laughs> What's the matter? How did you get into this? <laughs> well, I, I really, I was in Yellow Pages for a long time, and I, my best advertiser was a very large advertiser in the Philadelphia region. And when the uh, two different books decided to split and become, um, you know, more diversified, I mm-hmm. found that I really wasn't happy with the um, entity that I was with, and I called this particular advertiser and because he kept asking me if I would come to work with him really 
wasn't interested at the time, but as soon as he said yes to me and I came down, I had, uh, you know, I had left a job one day and the next day I had a job in the waste business and um, really got um, to a point where I was jumping on trucks and getting into construction sites and just learning the materials and so forth, and I just got really bit by this trash bug. You took, you took you right to bit? it. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's it's got to be a huge business today. I mean, it's one of those things nobody wants to think about, but you think about, I know there's a lot of debate about product packaging, how many layers of plastic and box and things and stuff, how many things do you have to unwrap? We just went through Christmas. I'm thinking to myself, oh, my goodness, how could they overwrap these things 50 times? And so the amount of trash that we generate every time we open a product, and now you're talking about businesses, you know, that just must multiply this exponentially here. Let's talk about that growing need to figure out what to do with all this stuff. Well, there's uh, most of the clients that we're working with right now require some form of, of a zero waste initiative. Mm-hmm. So when you look at um, trash and when and it, it it really encompasses not only plastics and glass and aluminum and paper and newspaper and all the other products, but all of that can be sort of separated out and diverted into other means for reuse or recycle. And so that's what I do, is I take trash and I literally audit what's in someone's trash container and I find out what can be diverted and what's trash is very small amount normally, and all the rest of it we divert out. So it makes it a lot of fun mm-hmm. and it makes it, um, um, at least for our company, since our initiatives are really on sustainability 100%, um, that's how we demand to work with our clients and that's what they expect from us. On now, this now you mentioned rebates, so do you not only take care of this problem for them these companies are generating have all this stuff and they got to figure out what to do with it anyway and being good corporate citizens and maybe being required in some cases to not just dispose of it but try and find a way to reuse it or recycle it or whatever on top of this are you, did i hear rebates do you actually make the money off of this thing here yeah, I mean, literally, and when you're looking at whether it's cooking oil, which is millions and millions of dollars in rebates converted into biodiesel, we mm-hmm. help fuel the country. You can take um, cardboard. You can get rebates on that. You can take plastics, aluminum, big big money in some of these things. So, yeah, we're providing our clients rebate checks monthly. I am so fascinated with this idea of using reusing cooking oil. I had been in the restaurant business years ago, a bunch of friends and I, owned a bar and restaurant because we thought it would be fun. No, it wasn't. <laughs> it was a lot more difficult than we thought. But one of the things we that came to light was we've got fryers. We're generating tons of this used cooking oil. You can you you throw it away. You can't just keep recooking with it over and over again. It gets funky. So what do you do with it? You can't pour it down the sewer. It's against the law. Uh, you get fined for that. So you have to hire somebody to haul this stuff off. And then people started talking about well, why not use this to re, like, I know they take old diesel Mercedes and other things like that and convert them into using them. Talk a little bit about that. How big is, is that still just pretty much a fantasy or are people really fueling themselves with this stuff? Is it just a bunch of hippies out there trying to be earth friendly or is this really turning into a business? No, this is a huge business. I would say in every major market in the United States, there is a, a large a purveyor of uh, or a manufacturer who literally takes all this cooking oil, um, dissects it down. Mm-hmm. Um, the byproduct is glycerin, which you can put into soaps, and then you take mm. the the cooking oil itself, that derivative, which is actually turned into biodiesel. 
countries demand around 800 million gallons of biodiesel this year, and so uh, since they've only had they, since they've only had about 600 million gallons, the need is great. And so, um, what this cooking oil becomes is the new black gold out yeah, there. Yeah. And so it's it's a commodity that is needs to be protected. It's a commodity that I've seen uh, been stolen out there. That it, <laughs> it just has to be protected. So there's a lot to this. And imagine though, how many restaurants there are in your community. I live in Southern California here. I mean, there's a restaurant in every corner here, and of course, most of them, not all of them, have some sort of cooking oil in there that they're disposing of. You've just turned that from a cost and a problem into a profit center. Plus, yeah, you're doing something problem. good. I mean, you know, you can feel good about it too. But, but just in hard dollars and cents, what, what, what kind of talk about that? What, what, how does what kind of money do they make? What, did, what, what do they get back in returns for doing this? Um, it's all based on an index. Um, we base it on two indexes called the Jacobson and the Ernerberry indexes. And depending on where you are in the country, determines how manufacturers are going to buy and or sell this product out there. So we actually um, look at this commodity and run through this index and actually find from our own vendors who supply the information, we do audits on them just to make sure the client's actually getting their money back. So mm-hmm. all the accountability in back of this to make sure that the conversion takes place, that the yields are correct, the weights are correct, is all a process and procedure that we've developed. Through what this. restaurant wouldn't want to hire you? You just walked in and mm-hmm. took a huge headache off of my plate, and you're going to send me some money on top of it from time to time, and I get to feel good? Yeah, yeah I have clients I literally pay millions of dollars a year on cooking oil. Millions. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah, really, it's great. <laughs> so and what do you th- it, what, uh, give me some sense of percentage of restaurants that take advantage of this? Is it still just a, a small group? Are most of them still just throwing this stuff away and not realizing the liquid gold they have? Or is it something that most, I, I haven't been in the business for 10 years, so you know maybe they've all caught on to this. I would say most restaurateurs are aware of it. Whether they do something determines the size of the restaurateur and certainly what initiatives are in the municipalities because it's different everywhere. But the gist of it is all the large restaurateurs have it. The, the top um, uh, hundred of the of the R and I index, which is the restaurant industry right. index, the big chains that, understand it. Yeah, yeah the right. big chains they do this. Um, the secondary chains they're into it. Um, I talk with a lot of franchisees now that are thankful that there's somebody like us out there that know how to account for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't tell you how many times, like I said, I've audited records from vendors and found another 50000 that I can give back wow. to Wow. Yeah, well, who would know? i got enough things to track without trying to figure out how much yeah. oil did you pick up and and did we get paid for it here. And yeah. All right, so yeah. oil is a big fun. big thing. Now, do you do this anywhere in the country or just regionally? Or? Yeah, um, it's all over the United States and Canada. So Puerto Rico and Hawaii. Are there others all. doing this, or are you alone? Are there tons of people out there? Is this a big business? I never knew there were brokers for cooking oil and trash and other things and stuff here. There are a few of us that provide this type of service. I don't know anyone who provides as much as what we do since we really are the largest cooking oil management company in the nation that we know. Unbelievable. All right, so let's talk about some of the other aspects of it, and then we'll get into uh, mm-hmm. some some of the more specific insights we're always looking for in these questions. Um, uh, cooking oil is one of them. How about just a plain old, the, the recycled, normal recyclable stuff, cardboard, paper, plastic, all those kinds of things that we all generate. You guys 
would instead of them just putting it into the municipal recycling program, you guys would find a vendor that would come out and pick this up and pay for it, or or do mm-hmm. is it or do they just simply pay to take it away? Well, if it's something like glass, that's usually a paid item. There's not a rebate, but it's definitely a good recyclable that can use for many different commodities. If you're talking about aluminum, those are very large numbers on providing rebates back, again, depending on the type of tonnage. Cardboard's another thing, but it depends how it is actually, what type of cardboard it is and mm-hmm. how much volume you actually have. We had a guest on one of our shows, I'll just interrupt for a second, that said, um, we're, everybody's always talking about what does China want? We're shipping stuff to China. What can we send to China rather than buying stuff from just buying stuff from them? And this person said, uh, and, and I've since seen it several times, that one of the biggest demand items that they have in China is for used cardboard. Is that right. true? That's correct. Yeah, it's still correct. And we and, and depending on how much they purchase, dependent it really determines what the supply and demand are here in the United States. So it's very much interconnected. So we're boxing up used cardboard containers and crushing them up and turning them into some sort of cubes and sending them to. Don't they have enough trees, or is it is it just the cost of trees and cutting all this stuff down? What what makes that so valuable that it's worth shipping on a putting on a ship and sending a thousand miles to China here? The fibers can be melted down about seven different times. Each time you have, like, whether it's a business card or a piece of paper, it can be uh, you're looking for fines inside the paper that actually um, they get smaller and smaller as you reprocess this. But it can be reused and reused and reused. And we're not up to the seventh time for anything wow. that we've seen out there. So, How much um, cardboard and paper waste do you think gets thrown into landfills, because we're always talking about filling up the landfills needlessly, and how much of it is successfully recycled through efforts, companies like yours. Just give me a rough ballpark. Do you think half of it's recycled or more or less? I would say over half is recycled. However, it depends where in the country it is. If you're talking about the Midwest, not so much. Hmm. If you're talking the western part of the United States, big recyclers out there, and more so that are in the southern part of the United States as well as on the east coast. It depends where it is. It's not consistent anywhere. All right. Um, I got one last question, then we're going to go to commercial here. So now you, I'm looking at the list of things that you rattled off here. We talked about the normal recyclable stuff, cardboard, paper, plastic, glass, and stuff. We talked about the more exotic one that most people don't probably think of, which is this grease solids that comes from restaurants that they turn into biodiesel. The other one that perked my interest was... It says infectious waste. Ooh, that sounds like one I don't want to hear about. Tell me what is infectious waste. Well, infectious waste is more like the needles, the sharps that are um, that people use, and they have to be incinerated in some capacity. It's a service that we supply to several of our clients where they have trash and recycling, so we'll divert waste from that, but infectious we pick up. But I wanted to add one caveat here that I think is important to mention, and that is we do a huge amount of composting around the United States. Hmm, Really? Literally, if if I'm in a restaurant and I take the food waste, instead of putting that into a trash container, I can put it into what I call a Slim Jim, which is a small container. Mm -hmm. I take that food waste, I put it into a container, I give it to a composter in the United States, and there's hundreds of them at this point. Um, they take this. We take a little bit of cardboard. We shred it up. Mm-hmm. We take the food waste. We mix it together. We we infuse that with oxygen, and 90 days later, it turns into topsoil. And don't they literally put get, worms and stuff in it, too, to help eat it up and digest it and, and turn it into compost? I've seen some people actually use earthworms in those kinds of things. 
Yeah, we have. I have not done that with the earthworms because most of mine is just really compostable with the heat mm-hmm. and the, the mixture of the um, um, oxygen and certainly the cardboard and grass clippings that we also can put in there. But we give it back to the farmers. The farmers grow the the, the food for the restaurant tours. So you've got a three sixty complete cycle. Isn't that incredible? I think that is fantastic. And everybody's so worried about organic and this and that. You're, you're supplying the organic material that allows them to be organic. Yeah, it's fun. All right. Well, a lot of stuff to cover here. We only got a few more minutes. Let's take a quick break here, and if you you can stick around for a couple minutes, i got some more questions I want to ask you about this. Okay. Stick with us, and we'll be right back after word from our sponsors. Can we talk about your family business? You know, that thing you put your whole life's blood, sweat, and tears into? Well, what happens when you retire or try and pass that business on to your children? At Succession Strategies, we can help you find the answers. We'll guide you through the unsettling process of protecting your family legacy and successfully passing your business on to the next generation, safely and securely, ensuring that it'll both survive and thrive for generations to come. So ask yourself just one question. Can I really afford to wait? Take the first step. Take our complimentary self-assessment at SuccessionStrategies.com or call us at 714-560-9022 to set up a free consultation at your convenience. That's Succession-Strategies.com. Okay, we're back, and we're talking trash here. And I don't mean just uh, bad-mouthing people. We're talking real trash here. Um, <laughs> let's talk a little bit more about uh, what it is that you, what challenges do you face in this business here? Because this show is basically about not just exposing people to different companies, different ideas, technologies. Yours is certainly one I had no idea. There were brokers out there helping businesses not only dispose of this stuff, but in many cases make money off of it. But what challenges do you face out there? It would seem like there's just a growing business of trash. There's, um, besides the competition out there, we've always had to really consistently diversify. And because of this and the markets, the way they've changed, we've been able to keep up with the sustainability areas, which is just key to our business and makes us successful. Um, Culturally, it's just the, it's the the people that you get out there. It's the training that you get. Um, I mean, it's consistent training for our people. This is a complex business. It's not one, two, three. I'll bet. There's yeah. 27 steps to doing one thing, uh, and and so we the biggest challenges have always been for us is to get the work process and procedures in line with what the customer wants. So mm-hmm. whether we're setting up expectations or we set up the workflow. It has to work, and it has to it has to be managed, and we're assisted, we're consistently being accountable for the different workflow studies, almost like a Six Sigma idea. Yeah, we, right. We work on this. Um, we'll never be complete with it, but we've really, really refined that. So, biggest challenge is just when we're when we find something cumbersome, we attack it. And I don't know, I think from the notes here, it looks like you do belong to a, a peer group. Is that correct? And you bring, the, bring these issues up. How, 
how does that help you? What do you find? It seems like you such, have such an exotic, unique business. I'm not sure that other businesses could even relate to yours. But do you find value in in brainstorming with other people here? And what? How has that helped you meet those challenges you identified here? Well, we all have we all have some basic issues. We all have personnel issues. We all have some form of financial issues, marketing issues, and just the day-to-day um, issues of running the business, per se, so many hours to work and so forth. Right. And I think looking at it, the business both monetarily and strategically and gaining insight um, on the financial side, my CEO group helped me to really look at my books differently hmm. because I only had one set of lenses. Now I've got five sets or six sets of lenses. Exactly. I'll look at this and they say, no, Susan, you're not doing this right. You really need to be concentrating on this. Or have you thought about looking at a whale curve? Or have you thought about really identifying your ABCD type clients and getting rid of some of the C and D type clients? Yeah, right. Before I wanted it all, this last year, because of my group, I really was put in very strategic positioning to take a look at the business, step back, let my senior management really run um, a little bit differently, and me look at, no, let's say goodbye to this client. We have to do this. We're going to increase here. We're going to do these other things. And I never did that before. It was always like more, 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 more. Yeah, right. I didn't get a – even though we were growing, I grew um, much more in profitability this last year than I did in the growth of the number of accounts that I have because we just did it smarter. So well, I it's like the trash business. Team. Sometimes you got to just throw things away. Yeah, that's what we did. <laughs> we absolutely did. I, you know, I feel very, very fortunate that um, I have people that um, really consult with me and that I can make phone calls to if I have issues or if I'm looking for a form or whatever. I really can't do it without my CEO group, and, and nor will I. I well, I'm a lifer on something like this. We're, we're glad to hear that because so we're big believers in the concept here. We think that uh, there yeah. is power. One plus one doesn't always equal two. Sometimes it equals three or four. You 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 get an exponential benefit that you can't really describe until you go through that process of, of putting yourself out to a group and, and, and then listening to what they have to offer here and, and taking it in. Yeah, and they, and they don't put up with your crap. Your Isn't that the truth? Yeah, I mean, they don't have to. They're not your employees or your paid consultant that are there to make you feel good. You know, they, they're there to tell you the truth, and they hope you'll do the same. And, yeah, and that's what I get out of it. So I, I feel very, very fortunate. I really do. Let's uh, wrap up because I know you're on a tight time deadline tonight here. Um, how do people get a hold of you? How would they find out more about your company? And are you really located on Green Lane? Come on, that, that sounds too convenient here. It is pretty good. We've got a, <laughs> I got a building here in Green Lane, and, and Green Lane, Pennsylvania, that's where we're based. We do work nationally. That's perfect, yeah. Our, our website's um, www.slmwaste.com. Dot com. We'll have a new website in March, and we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, and we have a blog on uh, on sustainability called Team TeamSustainability.com, um, and we're all into going the extreme, so you'll see a lot of different extreme forms <laughs> of sustainability. I'm going to look it up because I think waste management is one of those untalked about but huge, huge growth opportunities because we have limited resources, because we have even less a space to throw stuff away that we all t- just took for granted, and because the the whole consciousness ethic of the world is changing, is saying why are we doing this? Why are we constantly digging up new minerals and throwing, cutting down more trees? Can't we somehow reuse this stuff and save some money? 
So I think you're on to something here, and uh, I'd love to have you come back on sometime in the future here and update us as uh, as the world's uh, tra- trash management needs change here and keep us uh, up to date on what's going on out there. Happy to talk trash anytime you want. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you so much. I'm talking with Susan Daywit, CEO of SLM, a facility solutions management firm. Is that is that a correct acronym here? For, would that, is that how we describe you here? Yes. Okay. All right. Thanks so much for being with us. We'll be back in just a couple minutes, folks, with our next interview. Do you recognize them in your office? It's a common problem for executives and employees everywhere. There's John, over there. He just seems to have his own vision. Unfortunately for you, it's not your company's vision. Then there's Mary, who always seems to fall short of what's expected. You've got people that need to turn it up a notch if you're ever going to hit your goals. The never-ending cost of losing people and having to train the rookies. You constantly worry about losing key people you have become too dependent on. Extended Disc is designed for business owners, executives, and employees just like you. Extended Disc provides you with information to make better business decisions with confidence. Extended Disc helps you and your organization to be more profitable by avoiding decisions that result in expensive mistakes, wasted resources, and time. You see the problem. Extended Disc, the solutions you need to push performance and growth. It's time you made a call to Extended Disc for the solutions you need. Extended Disc, toll-free, 1-800-257-7481. Or go to www.extendeddisc.com. There's something happening out there today. All across America, we're seeing encouraging signs of economic recovery. Businesses are once again thinking about new growth, and new opportunities are emerging. But it raises the question, is your company positioned to take full advantage of the economic recovery and the opportunities it presents? Maybe it's time to ask, how has the recession impacted your business model? Is your business as relevant as it once was? Should you consider entering new markets or expanding into new categories? And what do customers really value about their relationship with you? The golden thread through all these questions and the answer to each and every one of them can be found in just one place. Your brand. It's much deeper than your logo and much bigger than your advertising. Your brand is the enabler of your entire business strategy. Rikas Baird is a brand strategy firm that can help. They specialize in business branding. They've helped hundreds of companies from startups to Fortune 500 leverage their brands to drive growth. They can do the same for yours. It's really quite simple. Find out more, just visit brandingbusiness.com. That's www.brandingbusiness.com. And plant the seed for economic growth. And we're back with uh, Critical Mass Coast to Coast. Again, just a reminder, this show is brought to you by Renaissance Executive Forums, uh, the people who pioneered and put together this whole idea of CEO peer groups, uh, learning from others, getting people together to share ideas, information, support one another, and brainstorm, make us all bigger and better here. Our next guest uh, is uh, totally 180 degrees. Well, maybe not. We were talking about uh, waste solution and trash management and stuff. Uh, maybe there's some way we'll tie that into our discussion with our next guest here, John Grable from John Grable Architects. Welcome, John. 
Oh, thank you. I'm, Pleasure being here. I'm searching for a way to connect these two uh, stories here. Tell us about your architectural firm. Do you ever deal with carbon footprints and uh, and recycled materials and all that kind of stuff? Absolutely. Uh, really, from uh, the beginning, I've been in the business for about 42 years, started when I was 16. And the first project uh, that I built, and I, I learned about architecture originally by building, uh, and then from there went to college and learned uh, another side uh, to the uh, industry. That's fa- I'm just going to interrupt you for one second. That's fascinating. So you actually worked in construction, you're saying, like 16, 17, 18, and, and learned how to build stuff. And then you went back and said, hmm, maybe, there's, maybe I can actually figure out the, the science and theory behind this. You know, sometimes I think you learn more working with your hands than you do with your brain. I agree. I think that. I think that's. Sh- I never heard any architect say that. And I, I suddenly thinking, why not? Why not actually get out in the field? This isn't just theory. You're actually pounding nails and stuff. And so many times I've seen buildings. I've walked in. I used to help uh, build bars and restaurants uh, as a designer years ago. And we'd go and we say, what were they thinking? I'm sure this looked great in paper, but oh my God, didn't they realize it blocks your view of the TV or that you can't open the door now because of this? Or The, the moment of clarity for me was uh, maybe when I was 10 years old and I, I learned that uh, after the 15th nail in, in a cross <laughs> uh, uh, board for a ladder going up to a treehouse, <laughs> that I only needed to put two or three in the right spot. <laughs> Fifteen was a little bit of an overkill. <laughs> Absolutely, no. So, and and I and I believe that uh, one learns more too, not just working with your hands, but also the uh, the residual effect of building things. Yeah. How uh, materials draw themselves together, whether they're with a screw or mm. or in the in the days when I used hand hammering as opposed to a, a, an air nail mm-hmm. gun, you you could really see and feel how the material would draw up tight, and so from there. Those were kind of the same, same things you learned as a child, like fire is hot, uh, yeah. water is uh, soothing, et cetera, et cetera. So, do you, so you find then, I never thought of that. I'm not really a woodworker or anything, so, but you're, you used a term that I'm trying to imagine here. You said the, how the wood fits up tight. So you, different kinds of wood would fit together differently, and if you've had experience touching it, feeling it, connecting it, you know that when you're going to spec out something, I really better go with this instead of this for that application. Is that what you're saying? No, absolutely. Yes. Some wood bends, some some uh, wood does not. And uh, and then the fibers in the wood are inherently different depending on the species of wood. So so all of those lessons really started to add up uh, uh, quite uh, well for me. And, and I must say, too, that uh, I've gone back in and I've, I've taught throughout my career and, and uh, various universities, and um, and I I love the experience of getting back with the young. What I'm finding is that they're starving, and they are desperate to have these kinds of experiences. Yeah, well, because they don't. In the old days, of course, we taught building. I'm going back hundreds of years. It wasn't a wasn't a science. It wasn't something you learned at a university. It was a it was a trade, and so you were apprenticed. And you went out there, and over years of doing it, you you discovered what worked and what didn't. Now, in so many cases, it's it's a sterile subject that we teach, and then you go out and you realize, oh my goodness, I didn't realize nobody ever taught me about this. I didn't realize this won't work. Absolutely, it it, it almost instills a common sense in in your uh, thought or logic. 
uh, in uh, your your thought patterns. Some of my most valuable lessons were learned by those that that were uh, had chosen the path of of craft and being craftsmen, mm-hmm. as opposed to the the distinguished professors in the universities. And I don't see a lot of craft. There's a word that just doesn't pop up as much as it used to. Craftsmanship. I grew up in Michigan, and people there was Chris Craft boats that built wooden boats, and it was a craft. You know, it wasn't for naught that they called it Chris Craft. It wasn't just because it was a watercraft. They viewed it as craftsmanship. And that somehow doesn't, maybe I'm just old and cranky, but it seems like that's gotten lost along the way. You know, the, uh, the feeling of a Chris Craft uh, motorboat uh, skimming across the water is totally different than something that's molded in a in a uh, fiberglass. It really you know. is, and you have to experience it. I have, and growing up in that area, and so many people had those boats and cherished them and took care of them. And even though I don't myself, I'm not a woodworker. I can't maybe appreciate what they're seeing or feeling. But that there there is a different sound. There is a different feeling to it going across the water, and it's certainly a different aesthetic look to it. I think the consumer um, is also uh, being, uh, because money's tight, mm-hmm. that uh, the dollar and inflation has um, uh, has devalued it, that that what people, I think, now are looking for are those kinds of things, those things that were always around, that visceral experience. Yeah. Now they've, they've become intangibles. And if you turn on a, um, uh, any number of television shows, you'll see that people are either collecting things that are old, they're restoring them, or, um, um, you know, the thriving car market. It's outperformed yeah. the stock market by 60%. I know. I, I have an old, I guess I'm one of those. I have an old antique car that I've worked on for years, a 56 Plymouth with the fins and stuff. We had somebody on, I've forgotten her name now off the top of my head, um, but it was a company that her father founded in the 50s, and they provide, I'm, I'm terrible, I should remember the name of this company here, they provide blueprints and plans for build-it-yourself wooden boats. And they started in the 50s, and they've been going ever since. And she said that her father's still alive in the 90s. She just took over a couple of years ago, and she said for a while there in the 60s or 70s, they thought the company was going to go away. Nobody wanted... The, the original reason for build-it-yourself boat was that it was cheaper. You could build it yourself. And she said then somewhere along the way, you know, boats became mass-produced and molded and fiberglassed, and she said nobody wanted to do this, and it wasn't the big cost savings anymore. She said people have come back to it because of the craftsmanship. People aren't building boats anymore because it's the cheapest thing to do, because it, it gives them something different, a different level of appreciation for the product, yeah. Well, I think that our everyday lives are filled with mass-produced items. And I think that if you pick up an iPhone, for instance, mm-hmm. I think that um, Apple Computer has done a, a great job in terms of mass production. But those things have an inqu- inherent quality of craftsmanship in them. And they do, and that's that. You, you nailed it, because that was what Steve Jobs obsessed over. And how it felt, how it, how it, the customer related to it, and that, that, it's hard to put your finger on it and say that's what it is. Don't they all have smooth edges? Don't they all have the same weight and stuff? But when you pick up an iPhone, you experience it differently than when you pick up anything else. They announce themselves well to the user. There's yeah. no doubt. All right, so re- bring this back full circle now to you. How do you? What kind of things do you build as an architect? Are these? I'm, I'm going to guess custom homes because it sounds like you're into custom craftsmanship. But maybe you're designing commercial centers. I don't know. No, absolutely, uh, all of it. 
the uh, the practice really uh, what we've done is um, our 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 goal is to uncover the inherent beauty of nature and mankind, often overlooked in the day-to-day rigors of life. And that goes back to craftsmanship in the fact that when you pick something up, you know it's different. Because of the commonplace um, and the, uh, the benign that, that is often in the marketplace, we're finding now that uh, because of energy costs, because of maintenance, uh, also just because of the human uh, condition and the human emotion to really seek out beauty always mm-hmm. is is um, is a driving force in both the commercial side as well as the residential side of the business now my great grandfather uh, i'm sorry my grandfather was it my yes. great grandfather grandfather i guess who i never met my father always said he was a tool maker and he worked at some assembly plant back in detroit and he used to make his own tools, like his own hammer and wrenches and screwdrivers. He so he would he had some kind of lathes, and he would he wanted a new wrench. He'd go down and design it and build it and crank it out and put it together. Which seems inconceivable to me to even think of that. Why would you? How would you do that? And why would you do that? And of course, that was my first question as a kid. My dad would talk about these tools with marvel and and wish that somebody had held on to them. He said, "I can't tell you why." But they just were different. They acted different. They were better. He he wouldn't even if he could. He wouldn't go buy a screwdriver at the drugstore. He'd rather make his own because somehow it fit his hand and fit the purpose differently. You know, again, there that is all about craft. And um, uh, part of my uh, family legacy is uh, on my father's side. Uh, my grandfather was a wheelwright and a blacksmith. Mm-hmm. There you go. And Same kind of thing. Yeah. Same kind of thing, and so when we'd go back um, uh, to Missouri and we'd see uh, all of the uh, uh, all of his peer group and elders, they would always go up and say that, "My goodness, so you're Fred Grable's son <laughs> or grandson? Do you know he made the roundest wheel in Platte County?" <laughs> and so I would ask my father, "Why? What's so? What's so? Uh, <laughs> what's so special about that?" <laughs> well, later on, it became very apparent. You know, but but still, uh, again, I think it's that it's, uh, and I'm sitting here in my conference room looking at layers of collections of old hand tools, hmm. uh, arrowheads, um, a collection of old uh, cars from different decades, yeah. starting from the 20s on up, and you can just see a progression of 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 the craft that falls off after a certain period. Yeah, you know, uh, it seems like the 60s was the last hurrah. Um, and I'm not saying that uh, it does. Something happened somewhere in there. We in, we turned industrialization into just a uh, a mindless machine that cranks stuff out, and it did it cheaper and it did it faster. Didn't always do it better, though. Yeah, sort of driven by a different set of of, of goals. Yeah, right. So talk about. Let's talk about uh, some of the stuff you've done, and then we're going to take a commercial break after that, and then we'll get into some more of the specific challenges and stuff you faced and you've seen in your business through the years. So, what is? Give me a synopsis if you can in four minutes of forty years of design here. Um, I believe it's it all started uh, and has never changed, and that was beginning with recycled materials. Hmm. Uh, learning that uh, in the industry um, of construction that we are using up an enormous amount of, of, of the Earth's resources yes. and that there's a finite amount of those things and that uh, I learned from uh, working for various uh, builders or contractors how important it was to uh, measure twice, cut once, <laughs> try to 
use the tools, never mindlessly grab a full-size uh, construction member, and then uh, cut off a six-inch piece yeah, for right, a block. Right. Try to manage those those particular skills. But as as time went on, there what I find is interesting is this whole. And I'm glad that the industry is out there now, and it's a green building. Mm-hmm. term you you hear that you hear uh, a zero carbon footprint right and this other thing lead whatever that stands yeah. for and, and all of that and we're doing a lead platinum house right now that uh, is totally it's 65 percent uh, efficient on the on its electrical uh, production and then from there uh, as long as it rains it will uh, be self-sustaining with gray water rainwater catchment and oh, uh, fabulous. and passive solar things, and we're finding uh, it is amazing here in San Antonio, Texas, that that the response that we're getting from people about this particular project—it's in an established neighborhood, and they're all they're all seeming to want to come over. They they're praising it, they're marveling at it, and we're we're sensing that that really it it only takes one kind of working example of doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do and that from there you can uh, uh, you can create uh, a revolution that people are ready for change and that they want they want to go beyond that world that that uh, that paradigm shift from the mid 60s to where we are now and that they're really looking for a combination of craft uh, as well as energy efficiency. And do you think and, any of that has to do with the fact that we're going to hold these things longer? You know, when I was when I was going to get a new toaster every two years, maybe I didn't care if it was the best built toaster. But if I don't have the money anymore to to throw things away like I once did, or I suddenly feel bad because they're reminding me how quickly the landfill is filling up and all these other issues, maybe I'm going to hold that toaster a little longer. Maybe I'm going to live in that house you know, 20 years as opposed to two years and flip it. Does, does any of that play into this? Absolutely. And I think that, that it's, uh, it's run its course. I think that the banks, the sureties, they drove this sort of sense of temporary. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that they're Buy a new one. Get a new one. Why, why move Absolutely. full with the old one? Yeah, the, the, the concept of, of just holding on to something and making it bigger than the last one uh, ensured that it was going to escalate in value, and yeah. really it was a falsehood. Yeah. Now I think there's this reaction of contraction, and that really what people are finding and wanting is smaller uh, and and better built and more quality. Well, you opened up my next question, which I'm going to get to right after this. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about this movement towards downsizing in houses. I'm seeing this all over the place. Smaller and smaller is suddenly... Maybe it's just for the aging baby boomers like me, but I can't be the only one out there who's downsized in the last few years. So let's talk about that a little bit more right after we take a message from one of our sponsors. Do you recognize them in your office? It's a common problem for executives and employees everywhere. There's John, over there. He just seems to have his own vision. Unfortunately for you, it's not your company's vision. Then there's Mary, who always seems to fall short of what's expected. You've got people that need to turn it up a notch if you're ever going to hit your goals. The never-ending cost of losing people and having to train the rookies. You constantly worry about losing key people you have become too dependent on. Extended Disc is designed for business owners, executives, and employees just like you. 
Extended Disc provides you with information to make better business decisions with confidence. Extended Disc helps you and your organization to be more profitable by avoiding decisions that result in expensive mistakes, wasted resources, and time. You see the problem. Extended Disc, the solutions you need to push performance and growth. It's time you made a call to Extended Disc for the solutions you need. Extended Disc, toll free, 1-800-257-7481 or go to www.extenddisc.com. This is the sound of a flat screen television hurled off a building. Now the new bike your kid wants. These are the things you could have all cast into oblivion. Because when you throw away money on wasted electricity, you throw away everything you could have bought with it. Use Energy Star light bulbs and appliances, and you could save hundreds of dollars a year. Saving energy saves you money. Learn more at energysavers.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council. Boy, doesn't that fit in perfectly with what we're talking about here. Talk about a unique scheduling of uh, PSA and programming here. <laughs> great. Um, all right, so talk about downsizing. Is this just my own imagination? I know more and more people in their mid-50s, kids grow up, and suddenly they say, don't need the 4,000, the 2,000, whatever it was, square, the dream house, had a lot of fun with it, don't need the big giant pool in the backyard, et cetera, et cetera. Suddenly, I don't know if I want to cut giant lawns. Maybe I need a condo instead of a house. There seems to be a movement going backwards. Absolutely. And I believe it's not just the baby boomers. I think it's really everyone. I think you're finding, or we're finding from everyone that's walking in the door, is that they want to simplify their lives. Things have become so complicated for so many reasons. You would think that technology really was the savior uh, and and the, the bearer of simplicity, but mm-hmm. it seemed to have gone the other way. Yeah. With that, and with that said, I think that there's a burden with with size. Um, uh, we tell everybody it's perfectly normal to uh, to think the way you're thinking in terms of your desire to downsizing. Just remember the dinosaur; they didn't survive, but <laughs> things under the rock did. Yeah, you know? isn't that true? And, and they became lean and mean. I guess I'm speaking of my military roots here, but we <laughs> learned the concept of bivouacking. And so we knew, we knew as the family unit how to turn direction at a moment's notice and never look back. Mm-hmm. I think that also when you look at government and what it's doing, it is trying to base itself on um, uh, this, this concept now of growth and being everywhere in one's life. Bigger's better. If you if uh, one rule is good, ten rules are better. If uh, one bureaucrat, let's get five more agencies. You know, let's, let's growth is good, supposedly. And, and the only thing that they know how to base a value on something is by its size. And so, therefore, if you're big, you're going to be taxed more. And really, I think that people now are at a point that they can't keep up with that equation mm-hmm. and that it has really kind of canceled itself out. I think it's now more about um, uh, finding the right size, something that, that you feel comfortable in. The human dimension did not change radically from the last century to this century, maybe a matter of inches. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of the vertical dimension, on the horizontal, that's another story. But with that said, I think that what people want are things that are well-crafted. I think they want things that are very efficient. I think they want things where they feel like they have a little bit more of a sense of shelter and they have a sense of control about uh, of themselves because they're not being overwhelmed by uh, 
abnormal proportions of, of space and, and uh, largeness. Something dehumanizing about it. It's like sitting in the middle of a museum or something here. You know, if that's your house, what is, does that really feel warm and wrapped around you, or does it feel like you're... You're own, you're owned by it rather than you owning it, if that makes sense. You know, you're it possesses you. If you have if you have an echo in your home, you're too big. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you uh, give you a little fascinating thing that popped into my head. I love to subscribe and read lots of crazy things on the web, and I don't know how I stumbled onto this thing, but there's a website called Doorknob. Have you ever heard of that? Oh yeah, and yes. it's about the design. Uh, it's all about cutting edge, cool designs and they talk about architecture and furnishings and furniture and interiors and one of the things they're always talking about are architects prominent architects who are futzing around with tiny little spaces can we make can we make can we make 250 square foot apartment livable can we make a tiny 500 square foot cabin you know more than just a door in a one room you know can what can you build into it and this whole idea of somehow shrinking the space around you fascinates me because that's the antithesis that's the opposite of what we all grew up in you get a little house when you started you get a bigger one when you have a family and it goes on from there i encourage people to go check it out doorknob.com check it out they've done tons of stuff that's why i seem to be so fascinated with small spaces what a couple minutes left what other challenges do you face as an architect these days if the world is changing so rapidly suddenly we're building different than we did 20 years ago how do you keep up with this I think some of the biggest challenges now is is to um, create opportunities for the next generation, and they're all desperate for a job. They're coming out of school, they're educated uh, in in ways that we were never educated in, and yet um, going back to what we said earlier about the fact that they're desperate to uh, know how things are put together and mm-hmm. how they're built, that I think that what uh, what we're finding is. The biggest challenge is we need to have somebody that is a recent graduate that can walk into the office once they're hired and sit down and start making a contribution after that uh, half of the work day. Hmm. And we're finding that we have to almost reprogram them and re-educate them and teach them about the things that um, that were not important in school but really are the basis of, of the whole profession. And I think, how many people are in your practice? Is it you and a couple, or is it this? No, we're, lots of well, there's uh, there's six of us right now, mm-hmm. and and again, this goes back to um, we we've embraced technology, and and with six people, including myself, we're able with the the technology and the softwares right now to do things on an either smaller scale or larger scale, mm-hmm. and these parametric model uh, softwares that we're using allows us. To um, uh, to move and 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 articulate and craft things in cyberspace and do it very quickly and it allows us to uh, uh, what would usually take if, uh, if you, twenty years ago uh, a larger staff yeah we're we're finding that the concept of safety in numbers mm-hmm. and and that different entities different offices where you have more intellect less manpower that are all coming together and trying to, they're all talking about collaborative efforts to where they could get bigger if they needed to, to pull off a larger uh, project. So do you find ways to reach out to the bigger community outside of your business, or is this, is this still a, 
I, I've got my business and I don't want to talk about it to other people. It sounds like you've got some more, not just vendors, but other connect. You know, obviously this whole show is about sharing ideas and learning from other people, and it's sponsored by a company that puts on peer groups and brain trusts and stuff like that. Do you have any sort of network like that? Are you in a peer group of any sort? Oh, many of them. On that social media, we've embraced that 100%. The website is such a great tool that we have because at the end of the day, we can share what we've done. And mm -hmm. we, we then go. record that on the website or on these uh, different uh, social network sites. And it's amazing that the feedback you get the next day from uh, the other ends of the earth. Yeah, and, right. And you wonder... How could what I did in San Antonio, Texas, be the dream home from somebody from <laughs> Siberia yeah. or the Philippines? <laughs> yeah, right. But, but that's the kind of feedback you get, so it feeds on itself. Amazing. Well, we're living in a new world, and it sounds like you're at the front of it and, and leading from, uh, you're not leading from behind, as they say. You're leading for your, you're creating the next generation of leaders. You're becoming a leader here, as, as the tagline says. Well, how do we get in touch with you? How do, do you do homes anywhere? Do you do buildings anywhere? Or is there anything you won't tackle? We, uh, uh, there's nothing that we won't tackle. We, uh, when we're interviewed for projects, uh, we, uh, what we look for is not only the project, but really more importantly, the client. Hmm. Does the client want to um, uh, push the envelope? Mm -hmm. We think if you're not living on the edge, then you're taking up too much room. <laughs> and we, we I like that. Push that. I like that. I'm going to use that one. If you're not out on the edge, then you're packed in the back there and filling up space here. you got to be out on the edge ready to tumble. Okay. I like there that. you go. And that goes back to small because if you got too much in your backpack, if you just make <laughs> uh, not centered and overweighted on one side. Yeah, holding you back, holding you down. I like that. But, uh, but we love the clients. Um, it, it, if it's a birdhouse, if, if, it's a, <laughs> if, if it's a garden, if it's, um, uh, if it's a commercial but, building, it, it really doesn't matter. And um, Because what we want to do is continue to invent. We, we love listening to uh, people's ideas, and then we feed off of that. Yeah. Because once you get those program requirements, part of our training is that We've now defined the box, and now it's time to go to the edge. So you don't want to build Levitt houses? Wasn't, weren't they called Levitt houses over and over again, where they just cranked them off and just set them up like a mindless assembly here? Always wanted to be a test pilot. Research and development <laughs> is far more exciting. There you, you know, go. We'll, we'll leave the other uh, 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 mundane for, uh, for those that, that like that. That can't fly. We'll leave it Absolutely. to those that can't fly. All right. Well, thank you so much. How do we get in touch with you? What's your website, phone numbers, all that? It's um, okay. Uh, the phone number is 210 820 3332. That's our landline. Okay. Our, our website is www.johngrable.com. And that's G R A B L E, not E L. Yeah. Somebody might Just think like it's E L, right? Just like Betty Grable, but without the legs. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll go as far as the, the last name. And then, and then, of course, if you just Google us, uh, uh, John Grable, there's, uh, there's at least eight or nine pages now. And, and they're all about these kinds of adventures. Well, I want to see you guys get written up in Doorknob. I don't know who these people are, but it sounds like you're their kind of uh, uh, focus. So you should con have your PR or somebody contact them, and I want to see one of your projects in, on the Doorknob site here. Well, uh I'll, I'll go ahead and contact them, and, and uh, please 
visit the website, you'll see many wonderful journals. Good, I will. I'm, I'm curious to see what kind of things you've created here. It sounds like you've done a lot of interesting work down there in San Antonio. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity to share. And thank you for being a guest today. All right. Well, that's going to wrap things up for us today, folks. Um, we've had two fascinating uh, uh, different industries, both of which benefit from brainstorming and outside feedback. And guess what? Whether it's architecture or regular business, there's a lot of stuff going on with recycled and reusable and uh, let's not throw it away kind of mentality. Let's get back to craftsmanship. Let's get back to taking care of the planet. That sounds, uh, that sounds like, like a good way to end from California. Here, Let's take care of the planet together. Thanks for everything. We'll uh, see you next week when Rick will be back for more Critical Mass Coast to Coast. As always, you've been listening to Critical Mass Coast to Coast right here on OCTalkRadio.net.